0: 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 1139. For those of you who are with us for the first time this Sunday, I just want to welcome you. Uh, our church has been studying through 1 Corinthians since about September. So, uh, just so happens that as we come to Easter, we come to chapter 15, which is dealing with the resurrection. And uh, today we're going to look at what Paul has to say about the importance of the resurrection to our faith. But let me just start by reading verses 12 through 34, which is our text, and then we'll we'll talk about it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under at His feet, it is clear that this does not include God Himself, who put everything under Christ. When He has done this, then, the Son Himself will be made subject, subject to Him who put everything under Him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts at Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. I've had the privilege of being in pastoral ministry now for uh, 18 years, and um, I've been to a lot of funerals. I've uh, conducted a lot of funerals, been in a lot of them, and and so I've had many opportunities to ponder the question, what happens when we die? Is there anything? Is there an afterlife? And to wrestle through that question... um, and, and it's a question that people often wrestle with at funerals. It's, it's a question I think we don't wrestle with enough. It's a, it's a very important, big question. Um, uh, and yet, there it is. And, and, and at different funerals, it's interesting to kind of listen to people talk and to hear how they're processing that question. Uh, some people believe that when you die, well, nothing happens. It's just the end. The, the match gets blown out. The the, the story is over. There's nothing after that. There's no afterlife. You're just done. Your consciousness is done, and so you cease. Uh, People who believe that, I've found my experiences, they tend not to be uh, rude at funerals and say things like that. They tend to be more tactful. And and maybe they'll say something like, well, you know, we'll always keep them in our memory, and as we think on them, on the deceased, that, that will help us go forward as we remember how they lived and what they taught us. Others, I suppose, believe in reincarnation, though I frankly haven't met a lot of New Englanders who believe in reincarnation. Uh, And even people who do, I I find that they tend to have a kind of um, sanitized, uh, Americanized version of reincarnation, unlike sort of classic Hinduism where, where there's a social stratification, a caste system, and you're trying to climb the social ladder by coming back differently than you died, but, but we kind of don't go there, it's just sort of this, you know, we come back as someone greater, maybe next time I'll be a movie star or something. But probably the most common theory I hear as I listen to people grapple with this question is what we might call better place theology. You know, you've probably heard this one too. Well, we know that so-and-so is in a better place. We, we know that they're not suffering anymore we know that they are with grandma and grandpa. We know that they're in heaven. Maybe a Christian might say, we know they're with Jesus. I sometimes hear people say, heaven has gained another angel. They're watching over us now from a happier place. I've heard people say, you know, they're with me. They're on my shoulder like an angel. And, and so that's probably the most common shape that, that I hear, even among Christians. You, you know, Christians say they're in heaven, they're with Jesus, which I believe. Um, but... Paul, here in 1 Corinthians 15, is talking about something different than that. He, he's talking about something mind-bogglingly better and, and so radically different. Paul, here, is not talking about just a better place. He's talking about resurrection. Do, do you understand that? Resurrection. In other words, the person who died alive again after they were dead and i'm not talking about like somebody who kind of you know codes on the on the operating table and they take the paddles and they zap them and then they come back i'm not talking about that i'm talking about that kind of resuscitation i mean like someone who's dead and buried who then is revived from a state of being dead coming back to life we're not talking about sort of coming back in another life as a different person who doesn't remember your previous life. We're talking about the person you knew coming back to life. That's the Christian hope. That's, whew, that's big. That is radical. That is different. Because there's something kind of uh, empirical about that. You, you know, if you say, well, when we die, we kind of go out or when we die, we go to a better place. Or when we die, we'll come back as someone else, but we won't know it. It's, you can't really test that. It's just like, well, okay. But, but when you say, no, 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 we're actually going to be the same person back again, it's like, Woo, really? There's something kind of now and earthy and empirical about that, something falsifiable about that sort of a claim, it seems, in this world, in this experience that we now have. And yet, that's what Paul is telling these Corinthian Christians. But they were having a hard time believing it. Look at verse 12. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? So, from what we can tell in this letter, there were some people in this church in Corinth in southern Greece in, uh, in the first century A.D. who had become Christians, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. And that probably shouldn't surprise us, because if you know anything about Greco-Roman history, if you know anything about Greek uh, theology or philosophy, you know that they really didn't have a category for resurrection. Christians didn't really, or rather Greeks and Romans and, and Hellenistic people, they didn't really believe in the resurrection. I mean, there wasn't, uh, th- there wasn't a box for that. Uh, that You know, the, the Greeks tended to believe that this world, the physical world, is inferior and the world of ideas is superior. And, and so the ideas kind of escape this world to be a part of that world. So, so this idea that, no, 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 this, this body is going to come back, the Greeks would just kind of scratch their head and be like, what? What are you talking about? We'd never heard anything like this. So now you have a bunch of Corinthians, people who used to be Zeus worshipers and, and Aphrodite worshipers and, and, and all of the Greek gods, they worship those gods, and now they've become Christians, and Paul's saying, and guess what? There's going to be a resurrection, and there's some of these new Christians who are going, what? Ah, come on. We don't believe that. So maybe that's just kind of an optional thing. It's like, you know, some Christians believe it, some Christians don't believe it. You know, everyone has their own interpretation, that kind of thing. But that's not how Paul treats it. Paul says, look, I'm going to break this down for you. If you don't believe in the resurrection, the entire Christian belief collapses. It all comes down. It's like Jenga. Have you guys ever played Jenga? You, know, you stack up the wooden blocks, and then you try to take out a block and, and you know, move it up here, and then everyone's doing that. I toyed with the idea of actually bringing a Jenga tower here today, but I thought I should try to be mature. But, um, you know, you, you st- and then finally, you know, someone tries not to pull that last piece that makes the whole tower fall. And, and the resurrection is like a piece at the bottom that if you pull it, the entire tower collapses. If, you d- if there is no resurrection in the, in the kind of literal bodily sense that Paul is talking about, the whole tower comes crashing down. And so you have an In this passage, I just want to point out four ways in which Christianity collapses if you pull out the resurrection. Number one, the most obvious, if there's no resurrection, there is no Easter. No resurrection? Well, no Easter. Look at verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's obvious, right? If people don't come back from the dead, well, then Jesus didn't come back from the dead because people don't come back from the dead it makes sense. And and, and you lose one of the most unique aspects of Christianity, which is the belief that Christ is risen, that Christ is alive, that his bones aren't on planet earth anywhere, that, that you can't find his DNA here because he's alive and he's out of the tomb and he's at the Father's right hand and that he's coming back. That, that's the, the core belief. I, I mean, you look at other religions, other philosophies, and the, the, the philosopher or the prophet or the guru or whoever it was, they're dead. And none of them say he came back to life. And so this is the unique claim from the very beginning that Christ is alive. But if there is no such thing as resurrection, well, then you don't have a risen Jesus either. And so it collapses. Here's the second thing that collapses. collapses. If you have no resurrection, not only do you have no Easter, you have no Bible. You have no Bible. Because that means that the apostles, that the guys who hung out with Jesus, Jesus' entourage, Jesus' posse, the apostles who went around with him, who were the eyewitnesses, and then who wrote down what they saw in this book we call the New Testament, that means that their central message of the resurrection is a hoax, and they're lying if there is no such thing as resurrections. Look at verse 14. Paul says as much. He says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. I mean, you know, that means that the very basic message that they taught is false. If Christ isn't raised, because there are no Resurrections, because that's the thing about the uh, about the gospel, about Christianity, is that from the earliest, earliest, earliest days we can tell, the apostles proclaimed, "Christ is risen." As far back as you can go, that's part of the claim. You know, there's other Christian doctrines that that seem to have kind of like evolved over the centuries and and sort of developed on their own. So, so some of you here uh, grew up Roman Catholic. And there's the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. You know, you don't, you don't find that anywhere until like the Middle Ages. And it kind of evolves slowly as this different doctrine. But you can't trace it back to the Bible or to the early church. Uh, or some of you grew up Protestant. And, and you've heard of this idea of the secret rapture of the church. That, that someday Christians are just going to go, whoop, raptured out of the world. And everyone's going to be like, where are they? You know, you don't find that idea anywhere in the history of the church until the 1800s. Interestingly, it just, it just was not found in church history. But this is a doctrine, the resurrection, that no matter how deep you drill down through the historical layers of the church, you keep finding the resurrection. All the way down to the bedrock of the earliest things we know about Christianity, you find the resurrection. It seemed that from the very first day that Christianity started, they were out there shouting, The Lord is risen. That's part of the proclamation. I mean, just look at this book. This book you're holding in your hands. You see 1 Corinthians? This this letter that you're looking at was written in the mid, probably mid-50s A.D. Mid-50s. You know, even people who are skeptical of the Bible, who are scholars, this is one of the letters that that even skeptical non-believing scholars say, yeah, Paul wrote this, and it was probably in the mid-50s, maybe early 60s. AD. It's kind of universally agreed. Uh, So, so here's a letter written like 20 or 30 years after Jesus. And, and, uh, you know, like Paul says, I'm going to go back to chapter 15, verse 2, or rather 3, chapter 15, verse 3. Paul says, for what I received, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers um, at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, he also appeared to me as to one abnormally born. And so Paul's like, hey, look, I'm telling you about the resurrection. This is like mid-50s A.D., but... I also learned this from other guys who were actually there, so, so that this tradition actually goes back to, well, the time of when it actually happened. This is As early as we can tell, they were always saying that Jesus was raised. Hey, you can even go talk to some of these guys. They're still alive. Now, they're dead now. But when he was writing this, he was like, you can go talk to them. The eyewitnesses are still with us. And that's a remarkable thing. You know, in other words, I think sometimes we have this, this theory it goes like this. A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was a guy named Jesus, and no one really knows anything about him, but he must have done something or stirred up the pot because he got killed, and then, and then his followers started perpetuating his teaching, and, and, th- and then that, that sort of turned into a legend. It, it, the legend kind of grew because, you know, people back then were really stupid, and they didn't have iPads, and so they're obviously dumb. I mean, you know, there was no one smart back then. I mean, all they had was people like, you know, Aristotle and Plato. But but people back then were, were historically ignorant, and so they believed dumb things, because we don't ever believe dumb things, but they believed dumb things. And and so they kind of fooled themselves into believing that Jesus was more than just a teacher. And eventually it kind of evolved into this legend, this epic myth that he actually rose from the dead. And then like, you know, 300 A.D., some council of church guys got together and in order to make money, decided to vote that Jesus really did rise from the dead, right? That's kind of the, the theory. It's just historically poppycock. Because from the earliest days, they proclaimed the resurrection. And so you have to wrestle with that. You know, if if, if you say, well, I still don't know if Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, how can you prove it? Prove it to me. Well, it's not that simple because you can't can't separate the message of the resurrection from the reality of the church. If if you're going to disprove the resurrection, you also have to kind of disprove the whole existence of the church because why did the church start? The church started because there were people in the city of Jerusalem, where the whole thing went down, where the tomb was, and, and there were these Jewish guys who were saying to other Jewish people, he's risen. And, and Jewish people at that time, they weren't expecting a risen Messiah. I mean, the Jews believed, some of them believed that, way at the end of history, people would be raised from the dead, but not now. And so they're going, no, no, he's risen. Right? The guy that we just saw crucified, he's risen. And what happened when they preached this message to Jews? thousands and thousands converted. Like, bang! How did that happen? You have to somehow make sense of that, historically, of that data. Why did they all convert? And why would Jews, who especially at that time were so rabidly monotheistic, rabidly, that was like one of the things that distinguished them from all those polytheistic Romans, why would Jews suddenly start worshiping a man named Jesus. I mean th- th- that kind of worldview shift, that, that's like you know, that, that's that's like a Greenpeace person becoming a Tea Party person. I mean that's just like whoo boom. <laughs> you know? That's so radical. It's so radical, even bigger than that. And and suddenly these people are worshiping Jesus and proclaiming that he's risen. And so the apostles are saying, if he's not risen. Our testimony falls apart. So you lose Easter. You lose your Bible. You know what else you lose if Jesus isn't raised? You lose your salvation. Because why was he raised? He was raised to save us. Look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have not fallen asleep, and those who have fallen asleep, in other words, those who have died in Christ are lost. Jesus rose... But why did he rise? Because he was dead. Well, why was he dead? Because he was crucified. Why was he crucified? For our sins. That's the whole message of Good Friday, is that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. The the message of the gospel is that I am a sinful man, and I stand before a holy God, and and I need to have my sins erased before God. I'm, I'm guilty, and I need to be pardoned, you know? If, if I die in my sins, you've got to understand this, people. If you die in your sins, you don't go to a better place. You need your sins forgiven. And you can't work off sin like calories. It's, you, you don't balance it out with good karma or anything like that. We're, we're sinful people in a broken and sinful world. That will answer to God in judgment someday. But the great news of the gospel is that God loved us so much that He sent His Son Jesus to die in our place as our sacrifice so that even people as sinful and selfish as I am could be forgiven and be reconciled to God. Now, how do we know that Jesus died for us? Because He was raised. You know, someone says, I'm going to die for your sins. here I go. And then they die. We're like, okay. Hope he died for my sins. Hope it worked. But then three days later, I'm alive. Wow. Okay. I'm listening. This man died for my sins. Wow. And so our salvation is validated by the resurrection. Our forgiveness is secured because the Holy One did not see decay, but God raised him from the dead and accepted his sacrifice in our place. But no resurrection, no Easter, no, no resurrection, no Bible, no resurrection, no salvation. And then no resurrection, really no point in the Christian life, frankly. Like, who wants to be a Christian if, if it's all just kind of a big hoax? It's, you know what, why do I want to be here on Sunday morning? I could be sleeping in. I could be sleeping in. I could be doing a lot of things. You know, Christianity... It is a commitment. Jesus said, whoever would follow me must deny himself and take up his cross. That's, you know, like, hmm, that's not a great sales pitch, Jesus. Can we work on the marketing there a little bit? <laughs> follow me. Take up your cross. Well, okay, why would I do that? Because there's life. But if there's no life, well, why would I take up my cross? And so Paul says as much, if you go down to verse 29, He says, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? That's sort of a weird verse, huh? What does it mean, baptized for the dead? And let me just sum up the scholarly consensus on this. We don't really know what this means. Uh, Probably the best assessment of this verse is, I, I would probably lean gently toward the interpretation that is just seeing this as another way of talking about Christian baptism. You know, in other words, why are people baptized? Why would you follow Jesus? And here's Paul. He's like, why would I suffer? Verse 30. As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? You know, Paul lived a very tough life for the gospel. Paul was not like those TV evangelists. You guys know the TV evangelists? And like, you know, they're 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 living large, they're rolling in a Bentley, they've got three mansions, they've got bling. You know, just give a little more money and God will bless you. And they're working in the dough. That's not how Paul was. Paul suffered for the gospel. He was beaten for the gospel. He was persecuted for the gospel. And so here's Paul going like, if there's no resurrection, if this is all just a big gag, like why am I putting myself through this? Why would anyone do this if there's no resurrection? Why not, as he says in verse 32? Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, if, if really, if, if in the end, you either just kind of go out like a match, or we all just end up in a better place, unless you're like a really bad terrorist or something. Okay, there's always some bad guy who's not going to be there. But the most of us, like 98% of us, are pretty awesome. So, like, we'll be in a good place. Then, like, why not eat drink? Why do anything? Why not shop till you drop? Why not spend your life cruising around the world having experiences? Why not? Why not do whatever you want? Like, what's the difference between the person who gives themselves to be, you know, uh, uh, to do the Peace Corps and the person over here who decides to become the Wolf of Wall Street? What's the difference? If if it all doesn't matter in the end, who cares? Really, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And certainly that would be preferred to the challenge of following Jesus in this world. So Paul sums it up pretty well in verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If all Christianity is is kind of a mental crutch to help you through this world, that's wicked, pathetic. Sad. But, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We worship a risen Savior. And if Christ is risen, then, it, then he conquers death. He, either Christ isn't risen and everything collapses, or Christ is risen and his resurrection is everything. It's either like really, really kind of meaningless and pathetic, or it's the most important thing that ever happened in all of human history. It's one or the other. It's, this claim is too big. It's too extreme. But Christ is risen, and he's the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. I love that. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You guys know what a first fruit is? It's like when you got a, you're growing a crop and then you get the first one. you know. Uh, I, I'm hoping at some point we'll actually have summer this year. I'm doubtful. Um, but, but it should summer come, I, I will uh, do a little gardening. I'm not a big gardener, but I, I plant a few things. I plant cherry tomatoes because a lot of them grow and you really can't mess up cherry tomatoes. So uh, I put a couple of those out in front of my house. I got a nice sunny spot. You know, you plant them and you watch them grow and then you start seeing the little you know yellow uh, buds come on and then the tomatoes set and then you know they start growing and then one day you're like walking home walking by your front door and out of the corner of your eye you see red you're like, Whoa. <gasps> my first tomato and you pick it and you bring it in the house you're like first cherry tomato of the season you know woo you know <laughs> And it's so exciting because you know that there is an avalanche of cherry tomatoes coming. It's the first fruits, it's the promise that it's all coming. That's who Jesus is. He is the first fruits. And because He is raised, because He literally came out of the grave by the power of God, through the miracle of God's power, we will be raised. You're like, what what is that going to be like when we're raised? How does that even work? What kind of bodies will we have? What, what's it going to be like? Well, come back next Sunday when we look at verses <laughs> 35 to 58. But for now, I'll just say it's going to be different and awesome. But then he goes on to verses 21 to 22. He gives a different analogy. He says, Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So there was Adam. He sinned. He disregarded God. Adam was like, listen, God, get your morality out of my face. Get your religion out of my face, God. I want to do what I want. And he sinned, and he died, and that's the world we live in, the world that Adam made, a world with oppression and injustice and uh, all the isms and all the, all the terrible things that people do to each other. And human trafficking and drugs and addictions and broken families and broken lives. This is this world. It's a mess. It's a disaster. And Christ came. This is the second Adam. But instead of disobeying God, he obeyed God and he rose. So just as sin and death came through Adam, so forgiveness and resurrection comes through Jesus. So if you're part of Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, there's hope of eternal life in Christ. But there's an order Verse 23, each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, and then, there's a, there's a time lapse, when he comes, those who belong with him. So Christ was raised, and now he's in the Father's presence. He's coming back, and when he comes back, then the resurrection of those who belong to him. And then, verse 24, the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, all evil, all the forces of darkness in heaven and on earth, all unbelief and sin, Jesus is coming back to lay claim to the universe. And he will not be denied because he's the risen king. And then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For any kids here who are gamers, death is the last boss that Jesus is going to take down. That's the final boss battle of the game where Jesus takes down death. And when we're raised, then death is defeated. You know? Christ is is the victor. That's why when... when, um, you know, Christians say to me, I don't understand, like, why does Jesus have to, why do we have to be raised? If, if when I die as a Christian, I'm in the presence of Christ and I go to heaven and my soul is in God's presence, why do I need to be resurrected? You ever wonder that? Um, and the answer is, well, because if you just went to heaven and your soul went to heaven, whatever that means exactly, you'd still be dead. There would still be an enemy. And Jesus is not going to let any enemies off the hook. Even death will be put down. And then once he has put all his enemies under his feet, verse 28, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. And finally, all the prophecies will come true and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. God will be all in all. And he will have his right. And those who are with him will be rejoicing forever, resurrected in a new creation. It's huge. You know, uh, there's a pastor in Manhattan who I appreciate. Uh, His name is Tim Keller. Some of you are probably familiar with his ministry. It's just a really exciting gospel ministry down in Manhattan Um, But uh, he often says this when he talks about the resurrection, I'll I'll say it to you too. He'll say to his his crowds um, who come to to, uh, their their church, he'll say, um, you know, I know some of you here don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. He says, but even if you don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead, you should want to believe that he was raised from the dead. You should want to, because if it's true, then it's the greatest news ever. Because even people who don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead, they still try to to do things in this world to make the world a better place. Even people who don't have anything to do with Christianity, they're trying to make the world a better place. They become teachers, they teach kindergarten kids, because they just want to have a little influence, just do a little bit of good in this messed up world. Or, or they say, you know, I'm going to become a nurse and, and I'm going to help people and serve people and try to just bring some healing and light into a hard and broken world. Or, or, or they say, I'm going I'm to become an artist and at least try to create beauty. I'm, I'm going to do these things to make the world a better place. And, you know, those are all good things. We, we all say, yeah, that's great. The problem is then you're going to die and then the next guy's going to come along and mess up what you did. And it always happens. You know, I'm working my hardest to, to serve this church and to see it be fruitful for God's glory. But someday I'm not going to be the pastor here. And then some other pastor can come along and mess up everything I did. <laughs> happens all the time. It's called church history. It's called the history of the church in New England. You know, the Puritans are somewhere just turning in their graves like, whoa, we came from England and suffered. What did they do with our churches? You know, it happens all the time. And so even if you want to make the world a better place, there's, there's a, a futility that death brings into the world. I know that sounds kind of heavy and negative, but like I'm just trying to be straight up with you. That's how the world is. And so you should want the resurrection to be true. Because if it's true, it means that it's not just us trying our best to fix the world, which we've been pretty failures at, pretty much failures at, but it means that God has a plan through His power to bring the world under His control so that the kingdom of God would rule the world in righteousness and peace and love and purity and all, all the things that our hearts cry out for, but it's all under His Son, Jesus, and for His glory and not ours and not by our strength. Well, then, what, what are we supposed to do with all this? If there is no resurrection, then the whole thing collapses. But if there is a resurrection, then, man, this is it. This is the greatest news ever. It's, it's very binary. It's very extreme. Because resurrection sort of puts you into the category of extreme things. It's like, wow, that's really crazy and not true. Or, whoa, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. So one or the other. It's just how it works. So what does Paul say? Look at verses 33 and 34. Let me just wrap this sermon up. Here's two commands. Verse 33, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. He's basically telling those Corinthians, listen, you got people there who are telling you there's no resurrection. Don't be misled. Don't, don't, let, don't let bad company corrupt your good character and your faith. Don't be misled into thinking that all there is is the match goes out, or we all sort of end up at a better place or something. There is more at stake than that. And then I love verse 34. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. See that phrase, come back to your senses? The, the, this, is, this is where Greek is really cool. The Greek word there for come back to your senses is the word for be sober. Like, sober up, you're drunk. You're inebriated. Dude, you're totally wasted, and you need to get sober. You're wasted theologically, you're wasted philosophically. You're half in the bag, you got three sheets to the wind. You need to sober up. Get some coffee, get some food in your stomach, put an ice pack on your head, take a cold shower, wake up, man. You're drunk. You've been drinking from the bar of the world, and it's got you out of touch with reality. You know, the important thing is just trying to be a, to be a decent person and, and live your life the best you can and send your kids to a good college and you know, hopefully you retire and just make a little difference in the world. Sober up! You're drunk if you think that. Because Christ is risen. It, this, is, this is eternal stuff that's at stake. Don't sell out for kind of a nice suburban sort of, well, just... Yeah. This is heaven and hell. This is, he's risen. Sober up. Well, you know, we we, we all, you know, we go to a better place. You know, all dogs go to heaven kind of thing. Sober up. Christ is risen. We've got to wake up and realize that, that either it's not true, and so, well, whatever, nothing really matters, or it all matters, and everything you do matters. For Christ. And so stop sinning, he says. Stop living the way of the world. And repent of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus. Sober up. And come to Christ. The arms of Jesus Christ are still real today. Because he still has a body. Because he's still alive. And those arms are open to you. They're open to me, thank God. His arms are still open to sinful people like us, that that we can come out of our drunken stupor and walk into the light and walk to Christ. He draws us. He summons us. Maybe Do you feel him already just summoning you? Has he been messing with your life recently? God loves to do that. He just messes with your life. Leave me alone. I'm drinking, God. He starts messing with you. He works in us. God, God loves us so much. He's pulling us out and he's drawing us to himself. Won't you come to Christ? Won't you, you stop fighting and sober up and realize like 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 the person who finally gets sober after years of alcoholism? I can't believe all that I've been missing. It, and there's an experience like that when you come to Jesus. Wow, I can't believe all that I've been missing. I can't believe it. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we need you. We, we call upon you as the only higher power who can save us from the drunkenness of sin and of this world, literal drunkenness or otherwise. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would reach down and have mercy upon us. We pray that you would show us your power and your glory for you are risen and alive. And God, I just pray that you would mess with our lives. Lord, have mercy on us by messing with us and and interrupting and interfering with our little kingdoms we're building here. Oh, Lord Jesus, send a wave of your spirit to just wash over the stupid little sandcastles we're building and to wash us closer to you. Oh, Lord, show us your power and your glory. Give us faith to believe. Help us to experience the risen Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.